1: what kind of a show
0: are you guys putting on here today you're not interested in art no well look we're going to do this thing we're going to have a conversation
1: from chicago this is film spotting
0: i'm adam kempenar and i'm josh larson
1: you count cards right
0: i'm not that smart
1: but you win you need someone to stake you
0: that's what you do you run a stable
1: i'm always looking for a good thoroughbred (laughs) That's Tiffany Haddish and Oscar Isaac in the new gambling drama, The Card Counter, from director Paul Schrader. Schrader on a bit of a late career role right now, coming off his acclaimed 2017 film, First
0: Reformed. This week, we've got a review of The Card Counter, and we wrap up our World of Wong Kar Wai Marathon with The Tonys, our end of Marathon Awards. That and more, ahead on Film Spotty.
1: Welcome to film spotting. You know, Josh, we talk about coincidence spotting on the show occasionally. This is when our show plans completely unintentionally align with real-world movie events. I think of when we did our long-planned Agnes Varda marathon back in 2017, only to find out that the then 90-year-old Varda was making her first film in a decade. The very good faces places. I also think we got Elaine May out of retirement and got Satyajit Ray a big Criterion release. Yes, we're taking full credit for both. Absolutely, we should. Now, how about Marvel introducing Tony Leung to the masses in Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings just as
0: we're wrapping up our world of Wong Kar marathon we didn't plan it that way we didn't know that tony leung was in shang no, and that no i didn't i didn't know no I,
1: I could pretend but i did not know well maybe we'll have a few new listeners when we get to
0: the tonys later in the show our end of marathon awards but first i suppose there's also some serendipity to the fact that oscar isaac is garnering a lot of attention for his red carpet shenanigans at the venice film festival just as we're discussing his new movie the card counter Having been sentenced to 10 years in prison, I learned to count cards. How'd you do that? Poker's all about waiting. Check, raise, re-raise, call. Then something happens. You remember it? Huh? This is where all the good stuff happens. They made you the fall guy. You need to back off.
1: You've been around him. He's a mystery. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I am not the critic to paint the O'Tourist portrait of Paul Schrader. I am, I admit, a bit embarrassed to confess that of his 26 directing credits on IMDb, I have seen four. One of which was 1987's Light of Day, starring Michael J. Fox and Joan Jett as Cleveland's siblings struggling to live out their rock and roll dream. But of course... Schrader isn't just a director, he wrote Taxi Driver, and has screenplay credits on other Scorsese films, including Raging Bull, The Last Temptation of Christ, and Bringing Out the Dead. And as much as those may be Scorsese films, Schrader is widely seen not just as a collaborator on those projects, but as a co-author. Which is why I remember being so stunned in January 2013, when I read a New York Times article titled, Here is what happens when you cast Lindsay Lohan in your movie a feature detailing the tumultuous making of Schrader's The Canyons, written by Brett Easton Ellis and starring Lohan and porn star James Dean. The Canyons is not one of my four, so I can't speak to its quality or how much it is or isn't actually a Paul Schrader film, but nothing about the erotic thriller made for $250,000 made it seem worthy of Schrader's talents. Whatever his motivations were to make the movie, it was unthinkable to me reading that article that Schrader would ever make another great film. And yet, that's what he did in 2017 with First Reformed. His ode to the cinema, transcendental, and filmmakers, Brisson and Bergman especially, he literally wrote the book on back in his critic days. There are all sorts of connections between Schrader's protagonist in First Reformed and the lead character of the card counter, Oscar Isaac's man at multiple tables, to paraphrase Schrader's own classification of his heroes, a diary writing guilt-ridden, redemption-seeking, whiskey-drinking gambler. Though, neither vice, the alcohol or the gambling, is done to excess. Will saves that for the guilt. It would be misguided to suggest that Schrader is guilty of excess in his visual approach, though the card counter's aesthetic isn't the unadorned, mostly static style of First Reform either. Whether it's consistent with Schrader's other work, again, I can't say. But he isn't using the same language as Brisson or Bergman either josh watching the card counter what struck you more the relative ostentatiousness of schrader's camera or that the guy who was chronicled suffering for his art trying to make the canyons has been redeemed with two late career greats
0: well i'm not a schrader expert i think you might actually have me beat by one film in terms of his filmography i do consider first reformed a great one and i would say he's followed it up with a Good to very good one. It's not nearly on the level for me. There are aesthetic distinctions here, although what I recall from First Reformed was the moments, the filmmaking moments that punctuated that austerity and burst forth with transcendence. Uh, from you know that opening shot pulling up along the lawn of the church towards the edifice um I, i could go on about the number of shots that kind of suddenly took us out of those fixed focused portraits of the characters and um delivered us to a different space a more spiritual state of being that's what really um stood out to me from first reformed i think we get some flourishes here in the card counter i think it's very interesting aesthetically and formally um maybe the sound design. I remember there being a lot of like scrapes and howling on the soundtrack for first reformed and here, how about that breathing that um, we get every once in a while, which it sometimes is like soothing and other times menacing. Um, We can never, it definitely keeps us off balance. Um, And it's not even just intense scenes. It could be a scene of William, the Oscar Isaac character walking through a, a casino lobby. And we hear that on the soundtrack. And then of course there are the most ostentatious touches the flashbacks to William Sins. Uh, we'll see how much we want to get into about his past, where he uses the these extreme, almost absurdist wide-angle mm-hmm. lenses so that the center is in focus and it's it's almost like you're getting a, a panorama that's just about 360 degrees right. uh, without even turning. Very yeah. bizarre. It's a demented funhouse type approach. Totally. So I think there are some, um, you know, flourishes here in terms of the filmmaking that I found appropriate and arresting um, and added to the film. But for me, First Reformed, again, no Schrader uh, specialist, but was at a completely different level. And from what I know of him, even as a writer as well, have seen more of his films that he's written seem to be like the epitome of what he is interested in or has explored throughout his career. And he, it just kind of all coalesced there. He seems to be returning to many of those same themes. This Mm -hmm. is another, you know, male character struggling with the state of a fallen world, his place in it, in this case, maybe his, um, stronger sense of guilt about the fallenness of that world and, um, trying to not repent for it maybe, but to, to seek redemption and just not being able to discover anything like grace that might rescue him. He's just not sure if he needs to be punished more, um, or there's some way that he can be rescued and that tortured middle ground is where it seems to me these Schrader characters often live. And Oscar Isaac's William is absolutely living in that place in an interesting way, intriguing ways, um, but maybe not quite as masterful a way as uh, Ethan Hawke's character did in First Reformed.
1: Yeah, in the setup, I described Will as redemption seeking. And I think you could say something similar about Hawke's character in First Reformed, though here, I don't know that it's a matter of him The character we meet at the beginning of this film being someone who is actually seeking redemption. At the same time, while I think you would have to say he on some level is punishing himself, he certainly feels tremendous guilt and does live an austere kind of life, including, it seems, a celibate one. Nevertheless, he is like the rest of us, Josh, in despite that great sin of his past, who just seems to be trying to get through the day. And this happens to be the way he does it. It's through the routine. It's the ritual, not unlike Hawke's character, not unlike Claude LeDoux's character in Diary of a Country Priest, the Brisson touchstone for Paul Schrader in a lot of ways. But it doesn't seem to me to be a case where he's someone who actually thinks he's worthy of redemption or that redemption is even possible until he's faced with a situation where – he believes he can at least try. He may not succeed, but he can try. And I'm bringing this up just because I do think it's an interesting, subtle distinction in this film, which is that we meet a lot of characters in movies who are suffering, who feel tremendous guilt. They're haunted by something from their past, and maybe they are actually kind of going through the world, hoping that they can do something to overcome that. I don't really feel at the beginning of the film that, Isaac's character is someone who actually views the world that way, which is what makes it suspenseful, which is what gives the movie stakes when he actually meets a character who might put him
0: on that path. Yeah, that would be Ty Sheridan's character, who is, you know, a, y- a young man who has some connection to William's own past and uh, is headed in a very dangerous direction, we can just say, and William sees a chance kind of to to steer him in a healthier way. And in the process, um, yeah, seek his own sort of pay penance. I think he sees that a way, as a way of paying penance. The way I read the character at the beginning, you know, I think we can say that um, when we meet him in this gambling uh lifestyle he is um he's out of prison he has recently been released from prison mm-hmm. and i think this um the monasticism that he's adopted is yes it has religious connotations but it's also i took it as a way to create recreate what he experienced in prison where to your point he liked the routine he liked mm-hmm. knowing how every day was going to be so he goes to these dumpy hotel rooms on his gambling trips covers all the furniture in white sheets takes down the pictures so that my sense was it recreates his prison cell. So it's a way to continue um, that routine, but also to continue to punish himself. The way I read this guy is that society has said, you've paid for your crimes. You're free to go. As far as we're concerned, you're good. Spiritually, he still feels, and not in a specific religious sense. We never get a sense uh, that this is a a religious person in any way, but spiritually, he feels like he still needs to atone. Um, and, And so I think that is what... He is seeking, and until he figures out what that means, he has adopted this life that is as close to his prison life as it possibly can be. It's not just what he does to the hotel rooms. It's the fact that you know, he knows how to win bigger than he is winning, but he caps that, right? He limits mm-hmm. himself. That's another, you know, this sort of asceticism that that he's putting on top of himself. You mentioned the drinking. Um, and even though, you know, he's Oscar Isaac <laughs> meeting women of all kinds at these casinos, yes, he has this monk lifestyle. Um, and so I think all of that is because this is a guy who is seeking a way to find that atonement, to do something that makes mm-hmm. up, for what he did before. So now I'm curious because what I'd like to find out from you, Adam, is um, I was locked into all of this and what he was looking for. And then we get these two figures who come into the film into this, this sort of um, monastic orbit. That William has created for himself and it's the Ty Sheridan character and it's the Tiffany Haddish character who Mm -hmm. is someone who manages gamblers um she you know she she works for backers who will put up the money um so that people like Isaacs like William can get into these high stakes tournaments and then split the money so so these two figures come in and how did the movie shift for you At that point, in terms of what we've already been talking about and just in terms of performance and these very different actors who Schrader has chosen to bring into this, what I guess could best be called like a Brisson by way of casino milieu he's created.
1: Yeah, I will say that I'm still struggling a bit with Tiffany Haddish's performance, and maybe it's just because of that juxtaposition against Oscar Isaac, not that I think she is too big or too ostentatious herself. And not that I don't think she's (laughs) not incredibly talented because she is, but there, there was just something about the rhythm and the playfulness that felt to me like an attempt at playfulness that didn't match the, the gravity or even the playfulness at times of Oscar Isaac. And that's, that's one of his real magic tricks Mm -hmm. as an actor is that he can embody all that. He yeah. can be the most charming guy in the room in one minute, and then he can be the darkest guy in the room who you think you're never gonna dig out of that hole. And and it really can fluctuate moment to moment. You know you made the cut. This is your moment.
0: You know, I think that you have the wrong idea about me. Yes, I, I wanna win the money. I wanna go to the World Series, but then that's it. This kid, Kirk, he needs help. He's got financial debts. And I understand him. if I can help him, maybe he has a chance to start over again. Resume his education and start a life.
1: And you would do all that?
0: Well, yeah. Yeah.
1: You have to be the strangest poker player I ever met.
0: Oh, you have no idea.
1: There was a sense to me of of Haddish not quite being there yet. Did you feel similarly, or is it more about the character for you than performance?
0: I think it's about the casting, you know, and I don't know Haddish all that well. have maybe seen her, you know, a couple of times on screen. Uh, but I think it's, you know, it's more, again, I, I agree with you she is talented we know Ty Sheridan is is talented mm-hmm. you know we we praised him going back to well the tree of life but then also mud and and joe right he was in joe with Nicolas Cage I think um so. yeah. you know as 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 a really young actor incredible presence on screen and i would say they both seem equally out of place but in different ways here it struck me that um uh, there is they have different energies distinct energies and it's on Schrader as the writer director here to know whether their energies, not that they ha- that they shouldn't do something di- different or aren't capable of doing something different. I fully believe that Sheridan is capable of doing comedy and Haddish is capable of doing, you know, serious drama. Um, but this particular stew that Schrader is creating, I don't know if their energies work because I felt, you know, that Sheridan was equally uneasy his character was equally uneasy in the scenes with isaac now now isaac as you said described really well is able to play all of these scenes any which way they need to go mm-hmm. but i felt the same sort of disconnect uh in the scenes with haddish and even with sheridan And we get a lot of them where he's um one-on-one with the other two and the ones that really don't work are where the three are together and I think that was where I realized, okay, this isn't Sheridan, this isn't Haddish, this is Schrader. This is this is like you saw something in the casting and you wanted these two people, but did you see two things? Did you see what they have right now? Is that gonna work for what you're envisioning? If not, can do you see something you can bring out of them to make it work for what you're envisioning? And maybe he saw that last aspect but wasn't able quite to bring it out because I do think that those supporting performances um, don't work in the way that the movie really needs.
1: I think you make a good point about the scenes where they're all three together, because maybe those are the moments where the movie starts to take on a little bit of a feel as much as this movie possibly could, which is not that much in the grand scheme of things. But it starts to feel a little bit like a road trip movie. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah these different characters or you're on the road together and it has that buddy feel to it, if you will, except of course it's, it's Schrader and you never really feel it come together in the way that maybe it could or should. And you're right. Maybe the, the casting here really is an issue. I want to go back to talking about the style a little bit. I think remembering our conversation with Schrader for first reformed and what I've read of the book on transcendental cinema, he wrote about those filmmakers, Brisson and Ozu and Dreyer, and then Bergman was a huge influence on him as well, especially Winter Light with First Reformed. He finds the transcendence in the stillness. That is really the the spirituality or where it comes through in those films. But you're right, in his film, First Reformed, and in their work, there are ways that those filmmakers punctuate and break that austerity that that heightens, I think, that that stillness or maybe just draws our attention to it even more And here. I think maybe because I, I had first reform so still ingrained in my mind, I was surprised by the level of camera movement here. Some of the bolder choices, even a relatively subtle movement, like one where he leaves a conversation at the bar with Tiffany Haddish, where, as I recall, she's invited him up to her room. This is a moment where they could act on feelings they both seem to share, and he declines and steps away, and the camera pulls back from her as she's looking at him. And and just that, that relatively subtle shot, just backing away from her, similar motion to obviously what he's doing and her watching the whole time, expresses that kind of longing, here I'm warming up for our Wong Car Wai talk later, mm-hmm. expresses that, that loneliness and the misconnection there. And there is actually a shot that mimics that later in the film, I think, very much by design. But there's also a really wonderful sequence with them, the two of them on a date that maybe I won't get into describing too much, but it ends with a pretty gloriously expansive overhead shot of this lit up Domain that they are in. But what really struck me too, Josh, is the way the movie seems to, and maybe this is where I'm apologizing for Schrader because I was so locked into the movie and so locked into Isaac's character. I was struck by how drab and indistinct all of the casino scenes were. And I say maybe I'm apologizing for him because... Perhaps there's just a lack of imagination or creativity or effort there. But how I experienced it in the moment was there is despite the emphasis on card playing and how much of the film revolves around this gambling lifestyle, there is no magic. There is no romanticism to card playing or gambling in this film. When he's at these casinos, which are these typically very brightly lit and exciting places that it would be very easy to shoot in a way that makes them feel like a kind of exciting space that you want to be in. The way we see it here, the way it's portrayed with Isaac in these spaces, it's as matter of fact and really non-exciting as it could possibly be. And there's similarly no magic in the card playing itself. I think the only time the movie gives us a scene where a character shows us something with cards and tells a story of a hand that was particularly transcendent. He's recounting a hand that he wasn't even part of, that he was just witnessing. Right. And you don't actually get to feel it in real time at all. So to make a movie that's called The Card Counter and to emphasize card playing as much as you do in it, and then to completely kind of demystify it, and make it seem as if, no, this is just part of his his modest lifestyle. This is just how he, this is how he pays the bills. It's a job like anything else mm-hmm. and nothing more, I suppose, seemed like a pretty bold move on Schrader's part. It is something that resonated with me.
0: Well, de- demystifying is right. And I appreciated the way that's done at the beginning where we hear via voiceover, William explain like if you can count cards, if you're capable of that, here's how it works. Here are the odds. And we even get graphics on the screen. Like yes. this is a plus one if this card is played for, um, For I think that's for Blackjack. And then later on we get, you know, he breaks down basically not thoroughly, but how poker would work, which is helpful to me, not a card player. So, you know, that's always nice. Not that you need that for a card movie, but it was nice in this case to kind of know. And, and it does wh- exactly what you're saying. It kind of breaks it down to like, there's a basic way this works. This yeah. guy is capable of figuring it out. There is no magic here. There you know, he's he's not s- that special. He's right. smart enough to figure this out and so this is what he does. There are um, no
1: scenes like there are in every other card movie you've ever seen where the incredible card player somehow notices a tell that right. another player has right. has indicated at a key time and he wins the hand because only he noticed that, or somehow he's able to read the entire table and he knows what everybody's holding. There's nothing like that here at all.
0: Okay, so you you use the word tell, which it makes me have to ask, Oscar Isaac's character's last name is William Tell. so yeah, or at least the name he's taken on. The name he's taken on, right? And I feel to some degree, and maybe this is why I'm a little cooler on this than First Reformed, either, even though overall I appreciate it quite a bit. You know, I do feel like this movie is a big tell in the sense that, um Schrader lays all of this theology on a little thickly. It's almost as if, you know, in first reform he had Ethan Hawke's pastor. So it was like it was all right there. Like this guy could just talk about this stuff and it would make sense because this is his life, right? We don't have any character like this. Yet this is a movie all about things like justification and atonement. And so what happens is we get we get a actual conversation about justification. We get a glimpse of uh, William's back tattoo, which has both grace and providence on it. And this is all stuff I'm a sucker for. Obviously, like I'm eating Mm -hmm. this up, but I I did wonder, you know, in a lot of ways, this movie is only slightly less religiously tortured than First Reformed. Oh, yeah. Even though there is nothing... Possibly more. Maybe more, even though there's nothing explicitly religious about it. Um, How about... Going back to another moment where the voiceover, William describes what um, makes a great poker player. And he says, a great poker player will see right into your soul. And it was almost like some of this stuff was getting to be a little too much one-to-one for me (laughs) where it was easier to take in first reform because that's the actual setting that this story is in. And so I was just wondering if that struck you at all. If, if, if Schrader was maybe laying that on a little thickly this time around,
1: what are you saying? It's odd that this gambler character just drops into his diary writing the word expiation. <laughs> I mean, you know what? I, I use it every day. Do you? John. Okay. <laughs> now I do, I do hear what you're saying, but I would counter with that. I think what at least worked for me, what, offset that is you're right the milieu of first reformed is maybe more appropriate for all of that talk but the key difference between the two movies and the reason why i think it actually almost was more justified here is that ethan Hawke's character really isn't guilty of anything maybe it's it's ignorance or a certain lack of action.
0: Yeah. They're very different characters for sure. But
1: but he's more building up to, to taking some kind of action that could be seen as redeemable or not. Whereas this character, and this is where I am with you. I actually don't want to say it because we don't find out what his great sin is. And I didn't know if we ever would, but the movie very much becomes about that. We find out what his great sin is. Maybe what about halfway through the movie or at least 35, 30 minutes in. Yeah. And it is, bluntly, horrendous. It It is truly awful, and it actually begs the question, a question that gets thrown around a lot in art and even in everyday conversation, but I truly don't think most people actually can reckon with or wrap their head around, which is, can everyone or can anyone really be redeemed? And the atrocities he committed, the things he did wrong, his sins are such that I guess what I'm really getting at Josh is I can, I can believe that if you're a man of, of any real rationality and intelligence and empathy who has that type of regret, you're actually capable of that regret. You'd be thinking a lot about those words and those topics Every single day, just like this character is.
0: Oh, yeah. You'd be living and breathing the feeling, if not verbalizing yeah. it. Absolutely. So let me ask you this, again, without getting into spoilers. I'm not going to ask you to solve that question <laughs> for everyone. But do you think the Oscar Isaac character believes he can be by the end of this film, where it takes us? Because this is the interesting thing with Schrader. It's it's from the films that I know of his, and maybe more so from the ones he's written, especially with Scorsese. It seems to like they seem to feel in their heart that the answer is no, yet they keep looking for it. They keep looking for the yes. And is that exactly where the card counter leaves us, right in that space, still looking for the yes? Or do you feel... um, And this is tied to how the Haddish character is presented, again, Mm -hmm. because it brings me back to, you know, another thing with First Reformed, the Amanda Seyfried character could be interpreted at the end as this sort of selvific woman figure right which is something that i think is maybe a little dicey about traitors that it takes a woman or even sex specifically to save a man and so that comes into play sort of here at the end but to ba- to back up just more generally i guess yeah. like where do you feel the oscar isaac character is on that question at the end of the story? i think i think you expressed it perfectly and i think that's
1: another thing that i really appreciate about the movie at least in terms of other films that we've seen that deal with again, those haunted characters and their sort of path to redemption that maybe they think they're on. It is as if there's a one-to-one equation here. I did these terrible things, but now I will do this and it will somehow absolve me. Even if they don't actually ever say it. And a lot of times in those movies, they don't, we understand that's their motivation, but they don't express it here. His motivation is actually a little trickier and more ambiguous, but he actually says it at one point. He, he says to, to Tiffany Haddish's character, well, I hope if I do this, maybe, maybe that will be an answer for me in some way. But here's the thing. I don't really think that Will or Schrader believe it. Mm-hmm. I think that they are just, to your point, they are kind of still pushing the boulder up the hill yeah. because what
0: other choice do we have? No, I think you described it well. His movies and his characters often seem to think it's something they have to do, and even though this is a guy, you know, steeped as we got into in into with our interview with him, and like the same religious background in a lot of ways as I was, it seems to me it's almost like his movies don't believe that the ultimate answer is grace, and it's not something you're ever going to be able to do on your own. Mm -hmm. You know, that's kind of the whole point. Uh, Now here in the card counter, the ending, which I won't get into, you can read a couple of different ways. It 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 either like demonstrates another example of a character who is continually trying to do it on his own, or it's trying to point out to that character that you can't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and to get into any more might be a little too spoilerish, ish but um, we'll just kind of leave that there. Another, another yeah. Schrader film with an ending that can be read in multiple ways. Yeah, another provocative Schrader film. The Card
1: Counter is currently playing in limited release. If you've seen it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email
0: us feedback at filmspotting.net. The Tonys are up next, not the Broadway Awards, but our honors for our recently completed Wonkar Y Marathon, plus Massacre Theater, where no matter what the scene is, I'm going to kiss the inside of Adam's arm Oscar Isaac style. Stay with us. I'm in the mood for love. Simply because you're near me, honey. But when you're near me,
1: I'm in the mood for love. Heaven is in. I know what you're thinking. Did he fire six shots or only five? Well, to tell you the truth in all this excitement, I've kind of lost track myself. But Ian, this is a .44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and would blow your head clean off. You've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? All right, Josh. What was it you said about Dirty Harry last week
0: on the show? You called it evil? (laughs) I might have just ugly in the heat of the moment. Either, you know, either one probably applies.
1: Well, listeners are not going to get my defense of dirty Harry next week on the show. when we share our top five films of 1971. It's obviously not going to make your list. It's not going to make the cut for me either. We are going to honor the 50th anniversary of a great movie year next week on the show. Also, we will share your pick the best film of 1971 our current film spotting poll question asks you simply to name the best picture of that year so far josh no real surprise a clockwork orange way out
0: ahead so wait a minute just back up for the record dirty Harry fan you're a dirty Harry fan just want to make sure
1: i think i think i gave it three stars which is a like for me on
0: letterboxd okay are you happy
1: are you happy <laughs> No, I, probably not.
0: I just I liked it. You know, I just wanted to make sure I understood. Now, <laughs> might have given it, might have given it three and a half because of Sertiz cinematography. Oh, oh yeah, that's right. You were on a little kick there, so that uh, I was. that might have blinded you a bit. Other titles we
1: gave you as options in that poll question: William Friedkin's best picture, winning The French Connection; Peter Bogdanovich's The Last Picture Show; Hal Ashby's Harold and Maude. You could also vote for Robert Altman's McCabe and Mrs. Miller, or you could choose other and I don't know, Josh, make a case for Klute or Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, Elaine Mays and New Leaf, or even Fiddler on the Roof, sadly, a blind spot for me as of this
0: recording. Yeah, me as well. But I will say right now, I haven't sat down and given this a lot of hard thought, but rough draft one, maybe two of those titles are on my current top five. Okay. You can vote in that poll now and leave a comment
1: at filmspotting.net. You can also send us a note, feedback at filmspotting.net, or leave us a voicemail. Now, I will put out the disclaimer that I discovered only the other day, thanks to a listener who responded to the filmspotting newsletter, filmspotting.net slash newsletter, to sign up. This listener pointed out that when you call the voicemail line, it's just a fax line. And sure enough, that... That did change. The company just decided that it no longer does voicemails. They're just a fax company, unbeknownst to me. And you pretty much would call the number and just get something beeping at you. So I apologize to was anyone this, who tried and failed. Was this change in like 2015? What are we talking about uh, here? Maybe 17, 2017. No, it hasn't <laughs> been quite that long. But I hope I have it reset up correctly. So mm. give us a try. 312 2640744. You can tell us your favorite. Actually, no, you can't, because Sam clarified our producer in the newsletter, it's not, it's not your favorite film of 1971. It's the best it film is. of 1971. Yeah. So Whatever that means to maybe, you. yeah, maybe there's a difference there. Also, looking ahead a couple of weeks, we will start our Jane Campion Ouvre review, our follow-up to the smash success of our Christopher Nolan Ouvre review in 2020. This is, as the name suggests. A series devoted to watching or re watching in a few cases all of Jane Campion's features in chronological order. Yes, we're anticipating the new Campion, just as we did with Nolan and Tennant. Her latest is The Power of the Dog that comes to theaters in November. Some people have already seen it at a film festival or two. It's going to come out in November, limited release. And then I think December 1, it is supposed to hit Netflix. If you are going to play along with this overview. The first couple of titles in the series, 1989's Sweetie and 1990's An Angel at My Table, are currently available on the Criterion channel. All of the titles in the series are available to rent on most platforms, and you can find all the information you need about this series at
0: filmspotting.net slash campion. Now, it strikes me, Adam, and I don't even really want to say this, but The Power of the Dog you know, had better be good because otherwise we're going to be developing something we could call the overview curse. I mean, Mm. Tenet, I know it has its vigorous defenders, vigorous defenders, but for the most part, and certainly for you and I, not, not a high point in the Christopher Nolan filmography. So if Power of the Dog proves to be something similar, I mean, we might just have to shut this curse, shut this whole operation down. Thankfully, early word that I've seen haven't read any reviews in depth, but just instant reactions have been very positive.
1: Yeah, I've seen a few tweets here and there and everyone really seems to be into it. Hopefully we will be as well. This week over on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, they have paired the new Reminiscence starring Hugh Jackman and Rebecca Ferguson with Michelle Gondry's great Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. In Reminiscence, Jackman plays a man who gives people the chance to... To relive a memory. Well, that seems like a pretty interesting setup there. I have not seen that movie yet. Alas, I will have to wait just a bit until I catch up with these shows. Reminiscence on your list, Josh?
0: Haven't seen it yet. And I don't know if, I I, I mean, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is one I'd love to hear these guys talk about, but it's also one, and I know we can't because it's in the Pantheon, that I would love to revisit to have a conversation with you about it's just a favorite of mine that i have not seen in so long so long so i don't know maybe you know 10 years down the road when we've completely run out of ideas and we Mm. just like start doing a marathon of pantheon films or something like that we'll get to it so we'll see if i give this a listen um but it's a great great film eternal sunshine of the spotless mind it is and despite it being in the pantheon i don't know anyone would begrudge us
1: a conversation, an in-depth conversation about that movie. I don't know if that would be the first time or not. Certainly we've talked about some movies as sacred cows that we have then inducted into the Pantheon, but we've long talked about maybe doing a Pantheon series at some point. Maybe eternal sunshine is the one to kick it off. The next picture show is hosted by Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes post every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcast, more info at nextpictureshow.net. One way that you can support our show is by joining the Film Spotting family over on Patreon. $5 a month supports us, keeps the show going, gets you ad-free episodes via a dedicated RSS feed. It also gets you monthly bonus episodes. September's bonus show will be our third and final James Bond installment as we gear up for No Time to Die, the final Daniel Craig Bond, and we're going to pair two together here. We're going to watch... A blind spot for me, 1987's The Living Daylight, so we're going to get the first Dalton, the first and penultimate Dalton, and we're going to get the first Brosnan, 1995's Goldeneye.
0: Cannot wait. I'm hoping to be able to talk the family into a double feature night for this. We'll have to find the time, but would love to watch these two back-to-back. I don't think either of them I have seen since their release, probably, so yeah, that should be a lot of fun.
1: And once we have completed this mini marathon, we will have reckoned with all of the bonds, except for George Lazenby, a shortcoming of this marathon, unfortunately. And there are a lot of people out there, a lot of family members, highly recommending On Her Majesty's Secret Service. I do really, really want to see that movie. So we're just going to put that one in there as maybe hopeful homework for the both of us, even if we're not requiring ourselves to see it. But otherwise talked about the four other bonds and that should set us up nicely for Daniel Craig's run coming to a close.
0: I think so. And and if I'm reading the responses correctly, the love for... Her Majesty's Secret Service, is for the film itself more than Lazenby. Is that fair to say? That I think that's Yeah, true.
1: so and, I think... And maybe Diana Rigg, but the film yeah. itself and Rig
0: over George Lazenby. And we've been talking about, you know, how the bonds compare so much. It just kind of has gone that way uh, in these bonus episodes. So it seemed like we might, as much as we both really want to see it and find time at some point to do that for our conversation, um, and with time running out, uh, it makes maybe more sense to make sure we get to Dalton and Brosnan.
1: You also have the opportunity as a family member to participate in our monthly trivia spotting events. The next one is coming up Friday, September 17th, 7 p.m. Tickets are on sale now, but again, only exclusively to family members. Patreon.com/slash filmspotting is where you sign up.
0: All right, let's do some acting. It's time for Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. A couple of weeks ago, Adam and I massacred this scene.
1: There's your train. Yes. You mustn't
0: miss it. No. What's the matter? Nothing. Nothing at all, really. It's been so very nice. I've enjoyed my afternoon enormously. I'm so glad. So have I. I apologize for boring you with long medical words. I feel dull and stupid not to be able to understand more. Shall I see you again? It's the other platform, isn't it? you have to run. Don't bother about me. might not do for a few minutes. Can I see you again? Yes, of course. Perhaps we'll come out to catch with one Sunday. It's rather far, I know, but we should be delighted. Please. Please. What is it? Next Thursday, the same time. No, I couldn't possibly... Please. I ask you most humbly. You'll miss your train. All right. Run. Goodbye. I'll be there. Thank you, my dear. That was Trevor Howard and Celia Johnson in 1945's Brief Encounter, written by Noel Coward, along with Ronald Neame, Anthony Havelock Allen, and David Lean. It was directed by David Lean. Along with that massacre, we had a World of Wong Kar Wai marathon review of In the Mood for
1: Love, and we revisited our top five movie romantic gestures. So why that scene from Brief Encounter? Well, Steve Yossero from Albuquerque, New Mexico, nailed it. I know this one. I know this one. The 1945 David Lean film, Brief Encounter, matched within the mood for love for the longing, the terrible,
0: beautiful longing. <laughs> also heard from Nick. He's from Akron, Ohio. I wanted to commend you both, and especially Adam for his spot on Celia Johnson in Brief Encounter for this week's Massacre Theatre. One of the best unrequited love stories in movie history. The- I just, I just, Josh took a bunch of amphetamines before we started recording. <laughs> That helps you with the fast talking, huh? Yeah. Nick says the website They Shoot Pictures recently did a poll of nearly 2,000 followers to determine the best movies of all time. Each person's ballot could include 25 movies. Mine included Brief Encounter, a highlight first watch for me from 2020, as well as this week's main review, In the Mood for Love. Brief Encounter finished a respectable 129 in the poll. In the Mood for Love finished number eight, the second highest non-English language film.
1: All right, Nick, thank you for the context. Thank you, everyone who played Massacre Theater. Josh, you're going to reach into the film spotting hat. No more longing for this listener. He is finally going to win a film spotting t shirt, and he is.
0: It's consummation for Darren Gunn from Connecticut.
1: <laughs> Congratulations, Darren. Email feedback at filmspotting.net, and we will set you up with
0: your very own
1: film spotting t shirt.
0: The greatest acting I have ever seen. I just don't know how you do it, Gary. How do you make yourself so somber and emotional to make everybody cry like that? It's not that hard, really. I just think about the saddest moment in my life.
1: We move on now to this week's edition of Masquer Theater, another one where it's a good thing. I still have a stash of amphetamines. <laughs> Very quick. <laughs> it's all about pace, it's all about tempo here, Josh. And here's the little hint. I'll give, I don't think I need to say anything about what the tie into the show is, but I'm going to say this is a certified Adam underrated movie.
0: Okay. That's a hint. Yeah. I that'll really help. Like it. That'll help some people. Um, help someone, I am a little concerned. Should, should we have a talk after recording about your, your situation? Is this what it takes these it's, days to pull off the show, Adam?
1: It's for my art.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: All right. Okay. That's fine. I started off. You're going to give me the action. And action. You disapprove of me.
0: It's not personal.
1: It feels personal when you chat up every other guy at the game except me, when you stay late for a drink with JT but never. Have you visited his Oscar? I think it's bolted on the hood of his car. It's noticeable. When you go out of your way to demonstrate that you have no interest in me, you did the same thing to Dean. These guys want to play cards with me, not you. Be that as it may. You know who the biggest winner in this game is? It's you. You know who the second biggest... You know who the second biggest you know who the second biggest
0: winner is? Look, it's you. And see. <laughs> you you almost had it there. That was that was like <gasps> almost a one-take masterpiece, Adam. Yeah. Still, bravo. Bravo. Two great performances in a row.
1: <laughs> I don't know. I I think I was able to tap into Celia Johnson better. Than, well, <laughs> this performer and character. I don't Know for sure what that says about me. If you know a film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline
0: is Monday, September 20th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. <laughs> I once fell in love with someone. After a while, she wasn't there. I went to 2046. I thought she might be waiting for me there, but I couldn't find her. Some translation there for you from Wong Kar-Wai's 2046, which was released internationally in 2004, making it here in the States in late 2005. It got a review, I understand, Adam, on the show well before my time?
1: I think so. I think Sam and I talked about it. But I can't imagine what we said about the movie. And I hope somehow that that file on the archive website has disappeared. <laughs> because what could I have said about 2046 when I hadn't seen In the Mood for Love? And I'm not sure I had seen any Wong Kar Wai movie up to that point. Yeah, we didn't have much of a perspective.
0: Well, and you know, maybe we'll get into this if it comes up in our words. But I, I had a similar experience. I had, I think, I had seen *In the Mood for Love*. Yeah, I had for sure by then, but um, did not realize how connected it was when I actually reviewed it the first time. So, um, yeah, 2046, final film. Also, we should note in the Criterion Collections world of Wong Kar Wai collection, which has been guiding this marathon that we've been doing. That's why we wanted to mention it. Uh, We're not going to give it a full review here, um, but as we suggested, it is a sequel of sorts to In the Mood for Love. We'll see if it comes up at all in our awards. Yeah, actually the end of that trilogy,
1: if you will, with Days of Being Wild and In the Mood for Love 60 set movies, though 2046 also takes place in a fictional future. The titles from our marathon, As Tears Go By, Days of Being Wild, Chunking Express, Fallen Angels, Happy Together, In the Mood for Love. And yes, even though we didn't fully talk about it, 2046 eligible for these awards. We did both revisit it. We are calling these marathon awards cheekily the Tonys, a wonderful listener suggestion. All the best ideas here on Film Spotting are always listener suggestions. But I wanted to kick things off with an email from a listener who gave us another idea for the awards title. It's Mike Rosenholtz. He says, I think these should be called the clocks, something seemingly so prosaic for a master of visual tone poems and unrequited longing. Yes. Hear me out. First off, clocks are featured prominently in many of the movies and time as a theme is lurking just off stage from the closing doors of the last fairy to the breathless time is running out feeling as it swirls towards its end. As tears go by is a wash in a keen awareness of time. In Days of Being Wild's memorable opening, Yuddy's punctuality serves as a backdrop to his arduous pursuit of Su Li Zhen. Chunking Express is alive with clocks and calendars with its ticking clock drug deal deadlines, the expiring can of pineapple metaphor for lingering pain and moving on, missed appointments, and boarding passes set into the future. And beneath all of this is the longing. Whether it is love on the horizon... On the rocks or in the rear view, the stretching out and condensation of time plays a huge role. We see clocks repeatedly and in the mood for love, but little actually grounds us in the duration of time as it is depicted. Mike had a few more very eloquent words there about these films, really a wonderful set of films. And he's not wrong. Time and clocks constantly recurring in these films, though I'm not sure that a specific time moment actually made the cut for me, Josh.
0: No, I don't know that one did for me as well, though. I'll definitely reference how Wong uses that element in in a few of my picks for sure.
1: Okay. So we have five categories. We will culminate with Best Picture, our favorite film of the marathon. We also have our favorite overall scener moment, our moodiest moment, which also we could just call kind of the the ultimate Wong moment from the marathon. And then we have two acting category awards. And instead of what we usually do, Best Supporting Performer and Best Lead Performer, we actually realized it made a lot more sense to do it this way. We're going to start with Best non Leung or Chung Performance, and I think I have all the options here, Josh. I won't necessarily give all of them, but you could, of course, pick someone like Jackie Chung, his character Fly from As Tears Go By, Karina Lau in Days of Being Wild, Fei Wong in King Express, or Chen Cheng. And Happy Together. Those are some who just appear once in this marathon, though Karina Lau and a few others pop up in 2046. There's Takeshi Kaneshiro, who's in Fallen Angels and Chunking Express. Leslie Chung, who's in Days of Being Wild and Happy Together, or Andy Lau as tears go by and Days of Being Wild. So tough choice here. Who
0: did you go with? I did think about Leslie Chung in Days of Being Wild, which is not where you instinctively want to go because in this marathon overall I think Leslie Chung has played the most toxic of the Wong men mm. and that's the case in Days of Being Wild, more so in Happy Together, but here um, in Days of Being Wild he's also a toxic character as Yudi but um you know I I thought Not only is he really good at that, (laughs) but um, here, his backstory, which involves his biological mother who abandoned him, it kind of brings in this element of sympathy. Um, Despite the way he treats women, you understand him a little bit more. So I did think about that, but I ended up going with, for my winner, Karina Lau in Days of Being Wild. Really? And yeah, because now she plays here, the dancer who goes by the stage names of Lulu and Mimi. She is... Treated poorly by Yudi, the chum character, too. But of all the Wong women, I feel like she gives back as bad as she gets. She doesn't go away quietly. And for me, there was something cathartic about that. Then add the fact that she can also match Yudi in the Playboy Playgirl seduction department. One of my favorite scenes is when Yudi's friend asks what she does for a living. And all she tells him, there's a radio in the hallway. She just says, turn up the radio. And then she starts dancing. So I saw, you know, Lao as uh, Lulu was sort of this nice combination of um, the women characters who are often put down upon by men, but in this case, fight back as much as is possible. And as you mentioned, she's also one of the reappearing characters. Uh, Lau as Lulu, I should say, in 2046. We see her a few years after the events of Days of Being Wild. She seems there to be worn down by her sadness and lost mm-hmm. some of that spark. Um she also appears as an android in the futuristic fictional segments. Uh, but it's her performance as Lulu in Days of Being Wild that is going to get my vote. I'll I'll remember her dancing from this marathon, and I'll remember her standing up to Yidi as, as much as a woman in that time and place yeah. could.
1: Okay, good pick. Andy Lau is Andy Lau, so of course I considered him for either of those performances. Jackie Chung, I think, as Fly, is really charismatic, and somehow, despite his utter hopelessness as a friend and human being and how demanding he is of his best friend's time and energy, he is sympathetic. So I considered him. I really thought you were going to go with Chen Chang from Happy Together. Mm. Small part in yeah. the movie, ultimately, but his sensitivity, and here's the L word again, his, his really quiet longing, I think, is quite moving. But in terms of my winner... This was a slam dunk when I started thinking about this a week ago. There was no way it wasn't going to be Fei Wong as Fei huh. in Chunking Express. And then something happened, and that something is, I watched 2046, and I saw Zhang Ziyi as Bai Ling in that movie. And comparing them, as I did today, having to make a choice— You could go degree of difficulty, you know, who has more work to do? And if you do that, well, then you probably go with Zhang. She's way more expressive verbally. She has to display more emotion. But Wong's restraint and how much she expresses non-verbally might be why it's the quote unquote better performance. Her face, anytime she is looking at Tony Leung in Chunking Express is maybe... The image, and it's really multiple images, but it's the image I will most associate with this marathon. That said, yeah, my pick is going to be Zhang Ziyi. Okay, I'm I'm just not sure anybody in a Wong Kar Wai movie, even Maggie Chung in In the Mood for Love, has looked more stunning. And Wong makes a living making beautiful people look even more beautiful, but also. And you were getting at this with Karina Lau and her character. Women in Wong Kar Wai movies have it pretty rough, (laughs) whether it's, it's just the unrequited longing or being actively mistreated and rebuked by the men they love. And I think Bai is maybe the most potent distillation of all the complicated Wong Kar Wai women. She's tough, and she seemingly is in control, and she's really sensual, and takes charge sexually in a way that is, if not totally unique to these films or all of Wong's films, is rare, yet she's also so needy and so powerless and jealous and vulnerable. And you you can see her putting up that really strong facade, but she also can't stop it from totally disappearing. I, I just found the performance, the character, heartbreaking.
0: So... This is fascinating. She, I think it's a good performance and you know, when we're comparing all of these, it's a matter of degrees. So it's not like I watched her in 2046 and thought that she was not working, but I found that she was dialing every gesture and line reading up maybe like a quarter of a degree more than just about every other performer had for Wong. And that's appropriate to 2046, because if anything held me back, it seemed like everything, even the things Wong was in charge of, were dialed up a little bit more. The colors, I mean, the red, was yeah. never redder than in 2046, right? So, so it makes sense that maybe that was even something Wong was going for. But watching her, I was just thinking, um, she's absolutely arresting, gorgeous, and you're gripped by every scene she's in. But it's just having those other performances in my mind. I realized yeah. Maggie Chung would have like done this scene, just just that quarter degree less, you know, that line reading or that look. Um, and so it's maybe why I didn't quite go that direction, but I, I totally get what you're saying. She's yeah. she's like, uh, yeah, you can't take your eyes off her when she's on the screen in that movie.
1: No. And what you're expressing, I think, is accurate. At the same time, maybe that's what so impressed me about it. And it's not so much that she was dialing up the performance, but that that character who – I'm suggesting is sort of a version of a woman we've seen in a lot of Wong Kar Wai films. Just sure, just had something slightly heightened, something maybe a little more volatile about her that I think really made her arresting.
0: And we should probably say just for those who haven't been following along in the marathon, or that Zhang may be best known for the, her part in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. That's right. how I knew her before seeing her in 2046. Um, and yeah, in- incredibly talented performer.
1: If we've given you our best. Non-Leung or Chung performance, that means we're going to give you our best Leung or Chung performance. Maggie Chung, you have four to choose from. As Tears Go By, Days of Being Wild, In the Mood for Love, and even though her character is but a memory, she does appear in 2046. Tony Leung... Does appear briefly. It would be a very provocative choice if you went with Tony Leung in Days of Being Wild for the one scene, the couple minutes he appears on camera at the end of that movie. He also, of course, appears in Chungking Express. He's in Happy Together. He is opposite Maggie Chung in In the Mood for Love, and he is the star as well of 2046, opposite Zhang Ziyi, Karina Lau, and others. I'm gonna say unless you've cheated, whoever we pick. Will be a fail and that they each deserve an award, or maybe we should just allow it to be a cheat and they should both win for In the Mood for Love. But I'm
0: eager to see how you solve this puzzle, Josh. Well, yeah, to your point, in our Mood for Love review, I said you can't really separate Lung's performance from Chung's in that movie. I mean, both are so great because they have the other one, and I couldn't do it here by picking one of them. So for me, they're can't, wow. they're canceling each other out for this award for me. And you know why I feel good about that, Adam? I feel good about because that. Because I cheat all the time? Wow. Well, yeah. <laughs> yes. But also, as wonderful as Tony Leung is in Mood, I think he's even better in Happy Together as Lai, the emotionally abused half of the film's central couple. The other half is Leslie Chung again. We talked about that tape recorder scene. Where a solitary mm-hmm. lie leaves a message for the man he can't quite bring himself to fully open up to. Maybe this is the most heartbreaking moment out of everything we've watched in this marathon. that one. it's so palpable, so raw, so messy. Lie just, you know, trying to hide these tears, sitting in this tacky restaurant all alone at that table. And that's the magic of Liang's performance in Happy Together. So many of the performances in Wong's films work as these operatically symbolic expressions of our emotions, and I love them for that. You know, they're they're like these mythical figures acting out what all of us have experienced in not quite as finely dressed ways, <laughs> or or you know, like accompanied by such wonderful music. Um, they, they are mythically experiencing these emotions. Liang here is that because he's Tony Liang. But he's also in Happy Together, just nakedly human. He, the, he is average in this movie. The, he's somehow Tony Leung and average. And that's something that we don't always get in Wong's film. So that's why it's my favorite performance from the marathon. Hands down, all categories, supporting lead, uh, Tony Leung in Happy Together.
1: Okay. So to be clear, I jumped to conclusions. You didn't actually cheat. You just canceled him out and you went with Happy Together. You got it. Okay, fair enough, Josh. How dare I misjudged you? I went with Tony Leung as well, but for In the Mood for Love instead. And maybe everything I was saying about Fei Wong Chung King Express applies here. When you think about just how fascinating an actor can be who we observe mostly observing and reacting and never really letting your emotions out. We were talking about the card counter and tells. This is a guy who doesn't seem to have any tells, always seems to be withholding, never really divulging anything. And I was rewatching some scenes today, and I think this is that restaurant scene, not the sexually charged one I described when we reviewed in the movie for Love, Josh, but the one where I think they sit down for the first time, really, and talk to each other, and they realize what's really going on. And it's not that they both don't know what's going on. It's just the first time they actually both have to confront the truth. So it's the conversation where Maggie Chung says, my husband has a tie just like yours. And he says, yeah, my wife has a handbag just like yours. And she says, I know. So the truth is finally coming out in the open. And if you notice, Leung blinks four times. Now that sounds like that would be pretty noticeable in, maybe even a little bit obnoxious. But when it's Tony Leung and also when it's in profile, so it's not a close-up that's, you know, really showing all of his eyes, it's completely natural. There is nothing at all big or showy about it. And it's a tell. Just those blinks is something that completely shows that his armor has been broken, that he is shaken there in that moment. And again, for someone like Tony Leung, he he conveys it that, that simply and that, Subtly, So really tough one, because I also think he's incredible and happy together. And of course, Maggie Chung's Maggie Chung. But maybe out of loyalty to the namesake of our awards, I felt like Tony Leung deserved it. Now, one of the things, Josh, that we talked about a couple of times in our marathon is Wong's politics. And how they do come through or don't come through in these films and what you can read into them and the things that maybe the two of us aren't always picking up on that many others who have studied these films more closely or are more familiar with the politics of Hong Kong would access easier. And we got this email from Tom Zellman. He's in Duluth, Minnesota. He said, In the Mood for Love is all the things you claim it to be and perhaps even more. After listening to Josh's thoughtful riff on the Cambodia interludes and rewatching the film with my wife, a reluctant but perceptive viewer, she asked me, is the film political? Hong Kong was handed over to China in 1998, or in the language of Beijing, reunited with the motherland. At the time, there was much apprehension, and 20 years later, we see the People's Republic's gradual but forceful eradication of Hong Kong's political democracy, its faith in its legal system, and its relatively honest business climate. In this film, Mr. Chow and Mrs. Chan display exemplary manners, good grooming, both look terrific even in a rainstorm, and an intense and painful commitment to not overstepping. We are not going to be like them, Mrs. C tells her friend, and that sets the tone for all their behavior. Can we speak about this as their Hong Kong Britishness? It is played against Ping's chaotic life and the corruption of the two martial partners and Mr. Ho's. Is the film's painful, unconsummated love affair a commentary on what awaits the Hong Kongers? At the conclusion of the film, everyone, except Mrs. C and Child, seems to be abandoning ship, leaving for the U.S. or the Philippines. Afterthought. There is something of the remains of the day here, isn't there? A love affair that is self-censored, an allegiance to a code that maybe never existed, an international drama playing out in the background. I say well done, Tom. I didn't make that connection myself, but perhaps that's why I have such affection for both films.
0: Yeah, that's all good stuff. I was also surprised how much political reference was going on in 2046, you know, which is set a little later, mostly set Mm -hmm. a little later in the sixties, I think like 66, 67, 68. Um, And and can I ask you a quick 2046 question? Just, it it was touched off by your pick of um, Tony Leung in In the Mood for Love because he's playing Mm -hmm. the same character, essentially in 2046, just those couple of years later. Did you find it a little, um, just kind of sad and dispiriting that the guy who we left in In the Mood for Love, whispering this secret into that hole in the temples became of Cambodia such a jerk. became a toxic wong man. Yeah. You know, and and just like not that I felt he would like find, you know, this perfect happiness in the years ahead, but there's some sort of like closure at In the Mood for Love. I think that was one of my hesitancies this time around with 2046, is like I didn't I, I Wherever Mr. Yeah. Chow ended up being, like, here was kind of a letdown. Is that yeah. fair? You're you're exactly right. I had a similar response in that
1: I saw him as more typical of some of the Wong men we saw earlier in the marathon, and not really at all like the character we met in In the Mood for Love. So yeah, okay. Topic for another yes. time, perhaps. That brings us to two even tougher categories, I'd argue, than the performing ones, We have our best scene and overall moment, but we have first the moodiest moment. And this was a category you suggested, Josh. You talked a lot about mood, I think, starting really with Chunking Express. Did you go with a scene from
0: Chunking Express or somewhere else? I have a nominee from Chunking Express. My two nominees actually are both slow motion moments and the one in Chunking, I think I didn't go back to look at this, but I believe it's Takeshi Kaneshiro's detective who is eating at a food stall. He is in regular motion, and then the world is kind of blurring past him, behind the people walking past him faster, and it's just just emphasizes his loneliness and his his out of timeness. Really, mm. to get back to this idea of time, the other nominee I considered was Tony Leung and Leslie Cheung sliding into slow motion. In that one throwaway moment over cigarettes in happy together. It's that sort of stuff that I think of as being a moody, wong moment. But my winner, my winner actually does not involve slow motion. It is Maggie Chung tentatively following Andy Lau into his hotel in As Tears Go By. Yeah, up the stairs. Up the stairs. This is first such a wong moment because of the music drop, a Sandy Lamb cover of Berlin's Take My Breath Away. It's already been a recurring motif in the movie. I just wanted to recognize his knack for the perfect and unexpected song uh, in so many of his movies. I feel like that's just pure Wong. It's also a Wong moment because of the nonverbal communication going on here. It starts off pretty direct. Andy Lau says to her, could you not go home tonight or something like that? But after that, it's this series of pauses, looks, hesitations, then action. These negotiations, these nonverbal negotiations, which is what so much of Wong's movies capture And then the blocking, how about the blocking? You mentioned the stairs. He walks up the stairs, disappears towards his hotel room. They're separated by that action, right? Suddenly Mm -hmm. this moment of intimacy is broken. She lingers, then she walks to the doorway, lingers again, slowly heads up the stairs until she disappears herself. Yeah. It's another staircase. You know, th- this is going to be a recurring theme for me. We'll get to my pick for best scene. Uh, I'm not sure what it is with me in staircases in these films, but I love Wong's mm. use of them. It's just another way, I think, for him to play with space and separate or bring together these characters. Uh, and that's all going on here in this moment in As Tears Go By. I think your choice and your runners up are where
1: my head was when I first started thinking about this category or when I first really started considering the types of scenes I classified as moody. And then when it came down to it, I ended up going with a scene where I think mood really applies more in the social media slang sense, Josh, as in, and here's another perfect pop music use To tie back to your choice, Fei Wong dancing to dreams in Chungking Express is a whole mood. The way you might see someone tweet that, that's what I'm going with for moodiest moment. Just rewatching that scene today just made me so happy. Dancing around the apartment, cleaning it. And at one point, and maybe this is showing how bad of a watcher I am, that I didn't really pick up on this the first time, but I saw it today. There's that moment during the montage where she's, filling a bottle of water with some kind of pills. Oh yeah. She's drugging him. I think in the moment I was just like, (laughs) because, because why would I assume that Josh, my head just went to, Oh, this, this has something to do with some, some cleaner or something. (laughs) She's, she's making the water or something. And, and then you see the shot of him pretty much right after that at his table, like in his kitchen, out cold, right? So then you realize, oh, of course, yeah, she put something in there. She drugged him so he wouldn't go out at night. And even that shot, though, is like an abstract painting. That is a beautiful shot of Tony Leung sitting at that table, head down, arm stretched out in front of him on that table, just these blues and greens kind of washing together. And then the moment where she finds the flight attendant outfit of his former girlfriend. And then, of course, like A character in an 80s movie playing dress up, you know, just decides to to play around the apartment, even takes photos of herself in the outfit. And again, it made me so happy. There is an ecstatic sort of joy. Even as you watch it, you're thinking about the fact that this whole scenario is happening because they can't actually confront each other. (laughs) She can't actually express how she feels about him. So she has to do this. But. That sense of joy is not something we get a ton of in the world of Wong Kar Wai. Yeah, that's true. And maybe that's why it why it stood out to me. It's not really as much as Chunking Express has a plot. That sequence isn't really advancing the plot, and so for me, it it really does fit more as a mood kind of scene, and it's more kind of tapping into her frivolity and her sense of fun. So. Faye Wong, dancing to dreams. That's it for me for Moodiest Moment, even though I did strongly consider California dreaming as well from Chunky Express.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. You've got to. Yeah, that that scene is kind of where, especially the drugging, the drugging bit, you know, it's definitely crossing over into major stalker territory oh, <laughs> at yeah. that point. Yes. Yeah.
1: That brings us to our best scene or moment. It came down to two for me. A lot of. Contenders, but really came down to two clear choices
0: for me. One very obvious
1: one, probably not so much.
0: Where do you stand, Josh? I'm not even going to talk about the ones I considered because I want to dig into my pick a bit and spend all of my time there. It's from In the Mood for Love, and I'm calling it Staircase Sonata Number One. We actually get two staircase sequences in the film with uh, Tony Leung's Mr. Chow and Maggie Cheung's Mr. Chan passing each other on the way to the neighborhood noodle stall. Both of these sequences, revisiting it, I was surprised, you know, they're within the first half hour. And both are actually set to the beautiful strains of you, Meiji's theme, which we discussed. I love how they work together and how the second, the second sonata, you could say, builds on the first. But my pick is this first sequence. About 15 minutes in, Begins with Mrs. Chan in slow motion, heading into the darkness of the staircase and down those steps. We then cut to her, waiting for her noodles down below, elegantly lonely, as all the other men bustle about her, paying her little attention. Then we cut back to the top of the stairs. As she's rising up, she arrives with her thermos, passes out of the screen. Second or two, we don't see anyone until Mr. Chow passes into the screen. We watch him head down the stairs alone. There's a cut. a to a shot of him eating a dumpling at the stall. And then we suddenly get this hard cut back to the bottom of the staircase, watching from that direction as Mrs. Chan heads back up with her thermos. So it's a little confusing, but because of the direction and because of the change in her dress, we understand this is another day. Sure enough, he begins coming down the stairs and they pass each other. There's a polite nod, maybe a word or two that we don't hear. He holds his glance backwards a little bit longer than she does. But then she briefly looks back at the top of the stairs before passing out of the frame again. It's just all here, Adam. The passing of time, the passing of people, longing, expressed Mm -hmm. at just the wrong time. I love that they don't share the staircase at all until the second movement of the Sonata, where they are in that space together. And we talked about the camera's discretion throughout In the Mood for Love. That is very much at play here, right? It drifts from the side of the wall to the full view of the staircase. It keeps its distance from her while she's waiting for her thermos. So as luscious as this scene is, it also shows this exquisite restraint. Um, So that's it. The first staircase sequence, it's my scene from the marathon. I did just rewatch
1: that scene today. Considered it for my moodiest moment, but I think it is an appropriate choice for you here. And there's another one I thought maybe you would consider. It was your number one romantic gesture on screen. That was my runner-up here, the whisper mm. at Anchor Watt, and it just seemed to me, in so many ways, the defining Wong Kar Wai. Image or at least action, the, the futility of, of that expression and that unrequited love being put away in that, that tree or that kind of monastery wall where we see it then covered up with mud, just like the, the old story
0: goes. Well, and he returns to it right in 2046, a couple of times.
1: So, yeah. Yes. But I knew For me, reflecting on this marathon, it couldn't be my best scene if it didn't play with a notion that we saw Wong play with in every film in this marathon, which is that conflict between reality and fantasy, the play acting that happens so much in these films, characters pretending to be other characters idealizing or romanticizing a certain way of life or image of life or image of them as a couple that then they can't actually live up to. And that's why I think I talked about this scene a little bit in our discussion of this film, but I don't think I totally got into it that my favorite scene from happy together and really my, my favorite moment overall from the marathon is lie visiting the falls alone at the end of happy together. This as we touched on when we discussed it is the the image that drew them to Argentina in the first place. This struggling couple, this volatile couple they go there because they've got this lamp that they picked up that shows these falls that actually exist. And they're, they're really beautiful. They look nothing like they look in real life, but it's a lamp and it turns and it shows this beautiful water and lights and the, the blue sky. And there's two characters, two figures standing there together looking at these falls. And they think maybe we're those men. And of course, because they're those men in a Juan Car Wai movie, they go to Argentina seeking those actual falls And never find them. nor do they ever find the happiness that they imagine those two figures have as they stand next to each other looking at it. And at the end of this movie, we get a sequence where they kind of do visit it together, but in a very kind of tragic and heartbreaking way, where we see Ping, the lover who is now living in the space that they shared for a little while there, who notices the lamp and that it's not turning and he fixes it. He fixes that lamp. But then as he fixes it and sits next to it, can only break down and cry. Then we cut to lie having actually made it to the falls. And that image of him standing in front of those majestic falls, his figure silhouetted against them, is I think is really one of the most striking images in this entire marathon but it also just heightens everything that is Wong for me where they're they're together in a way both standing next to the falls of course they couldn't be more apart from each other and never will actually come together and there's even something for me in the lamp itself being broken like their relationship and ping can fix that but he'll never be able to fix what's lost between him and that that image of lie by the water but having been set up by Ting and his sadness after he fixes the lamp, and we see what, what they hoped for, but they could never realize, that, that feels like the best scene to me, Josh.
0: Yeah, it's it's really something. And those images of the falls themselves, which we get a handful of mm-hmm. times in the movie, I, I thought about that as my moodiest moment, but as you kind of hinted at, it, it stands apart in many ways from so much of what we get in Wong's film. So I felt like it, it wasn't representative, even if it was maybe a highlight, but that scene is fantastic as well. It
1: brings us to our final category, and maybe it's going to be a little bit lacking in suspense or articulation. I don't know what more we need to say about In the Mood for Love, which I think is hands down the best film in
0: this marathon. Did you go in a different direction, Josh? I mean, I'd love to. I I hate disagreeing with you. No, that's not true. I I, I said on Twitter, like, my favorite shows are when we both, we both right. just go crazy over a masterpiece. And that's what happened with In the Mood for Love. This was an easy choice, but it kind of wasn't. I mean, it's not like these other films we've seen are lacking. I mean, Chunking express is in my top five of 94 happy together. I think is an even better film. My, this was my first time watching it and I like it even more than King express. So these are, you know, really among some of the best films made in the last, what, 20, 30, whatever it is years. Mm -hmm. But in the mood for love is just, I mean, everything we've come to love about a Wong film is perfectly calibrated and controlled here while also feeling lush and sensuous, while also feeling like that rigidity could burst open at any mm-hmm. moment. And, and it's that tension that makes it, that sets it apart from all the other films. I mean, it's, it's really one of those rare ones, Adam, you're tempted to call a perfect movie.
1: Hmm. Well said. And we'll close with this bit of feedback from listener Brandon Kemp, also on the subject of Wong and his politics. And here he's talking about Happy Together, he says, as both a fan of the podcast and a cinema lover who mostly writes about Chinese language films, I enjoyed the recent discussions of Wong Kar-wai's works, in particular the episode on Happy Together. After the Hong Kong authorities' recent decision to tighten censorship of film production and screening, I also found myself revisiting the subtle but omnipresent politics of Wong's oeuvre. Wong's films, as film scholar Akbar Abbas points out, are full of expiration dates and characters whose identities mirror and blur into one another. And happy together, we see these themes of loss, of home, exile, failed unions, and even missing passports play out. Wong reportedly hoped to make a true gay film quote unquote, hence the surprisingly explicit for the first time sex scene at the beginning before the handover, fearing shrinking space for artists and directors to explore taboo themes like same sex love and local identity after the handover. He was sadly remarkably prescient, judging by the city's increasing crackdowns on artistic and political dissent. And Brandon does have more great insight into that film and Wong's work overall. We
0: Thank him and all the listeners who followed along with this marathon. Yeah, that's good stuff, Brandon. Thank you. Um, real quick, Adam, should we should we put in the mood for love in the Pantheon? I mean, it's it's Ooh. probably, you know, should have been mm. in there well before, considering we both saw it many years ago. But I think after this revisit, it kind of has to happen. Here's a question that our listeners will enjoy before I answer are we sure it's not already in the pantheon i checked because i thought it was i i thought i think i checked back when i picked that movie romantic gesture when i made that moment my number 1 mm-hmm. and that's not that i always do this but <laughs> i think that's why i felt it was okay to put it in cuz it wasn't in the pantheon i'm looking at it now and it's not so um unless that's a mistake uh, yeah, you know no, the, I... the the guardians of the pantheon I think it's got to go in. I
1: validate it. I validate that after looking at the list myself. And this was completely unplanned. But Sam, bust out the music. It's done. We've completed the marathon. And In the Mood for Love, our best picture from the Wong Kar-wai Marathon not only gets the Tony, it's going in the pantheon. I'll be right here.
0: What is this? Your farewell speech? Going home. Your farewell to the troops. I'm not going home. I'm going, Wisconsin. Have a good trip.
1: All right. Our work here is done. You can see the complete lineup for the World of Wong Kar Wai Marathon at filmspotting.net slash marathons. That's also where you can find the dozens of marathons we've done over the last 15 plus years. We will get to a couple more marathons next year. We like to do at least two every year. We have not settled on a topic yet, so if you want to put your finger on the scale, you can do that. Give us an idea, feedback at filmspotting.net. That's our show,
0: Josh. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, Adam is at FilmSpotting. I'm at Larson on Film. In the show archives over at filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005, a fair share of marathons are there as well. You can also vote in the current film spotting poll on the website. We're asking, what is the best film of 1971? To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out on
1: digital this weekend. The new movie, Kate, and I think I could give you a hundred guesses and you'd never come up with anything like this based on the title. Mary Elizabeth Winstead is a ruthless criminal operative with 24 hours to live and to exact revenge on her enemies. Sounds... Intense. In wide release, Malignant. This is the new horror film from James Wan, who did The Conjuring, Saw, and Insidious. Also, Queen Pins, starring Kristen Bell and Kirby Howe-Baptiste. They run a multi-million dollar counterfeit coupon operation. And Vince Vaughn and Paul Walter Hauser want to shut them down. In limited release, a movie that came up during our fall preview last week. My number five question. I wondered, will language lessons not make me regret watching a quote-unquote pandemic movie. I feel really good about this one, Josh. Language Lessons does open in limited release this weekend. It stars Natalie Morales and Mark Duplass, also out in limited release. The movie we discussed earlier in the show, recommended by both of us, Paul Schrader's The Card Counter. Next week, we will get to our top five films of 1971.
0: Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Cat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This
1: conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.